Well, hello and welcome to the Christmas special of the A Photographic Life podcast. I hope you're about to have a good time, or if you're listening to this post-Christmas, I hope you had a good time. This year, I've decided to bring a little bit of Californian sunshine to the podcast, as perhaps was indicated by uh, the Beach Boys there with Little Saint Nick. So, who are we talking with? Well, it's Jeff Dunas, who was born in 1954 in Los Angeles, California, and his work spans five decades and has appeared in hundreds of magazines as album covers in books and as calendars. Dunas's principal areas of work have included nudes, documentary, portrait and street photography and is the author of eight monographs and five museum catalogues. As an entrepreneur, he founded Melrose Publishing Company, Collectors Editions Limited, launched, edited and published Collectors Photography magazine and published Darkroom Photography, later to become Camera and Darkroom. Dunas founded the Palm Springs Photo Festival in 2006 and the official portfolio review at Photo Plus Expo in 2010. In 2014, he produced and directed Photosynthesis, a photography and music festival in Los Angeles for the Annenberg Foundation. His work has been shown in 12 one-person museum exhibitions and over 50 gallery exhibitions. He's lived between Los Angeles and Paris, France since 1974. And as you're about to hear, he's a very good conversationalist. Great um, to have you on the podcast. We've never spoken before. We've never met before. And we've kind of been thrown together by the photographer Andrew McPherson. Um, Mm -hmm. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you and nice to meet you. You and I share... Uh, a huge amount in our backgrounds, which are similar, uh, working for magazines, photography, setting up magazines. But one of the things I, I'm really interested in in kind of talking to you about is the setting up of a photo festival. You set up um, the Palm Springs Photo Festival um, and also the entrepreneurial spirit which I think is really core to being a photographer and how that's taken you off into other areas. So um, shall we kick off with entrepreneurial spirit? What do you, what do you think about that? Well, you know, I, I think some people have that innately and some possibly, you know, w- would be uncomfortable with that as a, as a trajectory. But even as a teenager, you know, my passion for making photographs was, was overriding. And, uh, I, you know, all I could do was go every day and take pictures and develop them and print them. And then at one point, I suddenly had this like I- illuminated moment where I said, well, what am I doing? What am I doing this for? And then it suddenly came to me, I need a portfolio. And then, you know, so there was suddenly a reason and then it started it sort of put things into perspective um so then i started showing the work to every magazine editor in los angeles and trying to get jobs and then when when i didn't necessarily get jobs and i'm only remember i'm 16 or 17 i decided i would actually shoot stories and try to sell existing stories and that actually was the precursor of how i my whole career developed because Although I, I, I have made, obviously, you know, many, many, many assignments and worked on lots of work for ad agencies and magazines everywhere, I primarily created work that I sold. That's how I made a living. So there is that running through my whole history. So really, I, I suppose, yeah, what we're talking about is ambition, isn't it? It's ambition and and a, and, a, and a desire to just like teleport yourself where you want to be, where you want to be paid uh, to do pictures and make make work. And the challenges of being a freelance photographer is a, a which is I don't think that exists really anymore. But there was that there was this uh, there was this book about freelance photography by a guy called Arvel Allers. A-H-L-E-R-S. And it was like this little handbook of how to be a freelance photographer in those days. And it was like how to write query letters and, you know, how to make submissions and what to do, you know, like this sort of thing. Um, and I totally remember that, of course, the best format is four by five. That's the best, most accepted format. But they're beginning to understand two and a quarter as a, and even 35 millimeter. So this is like going way back. But, you know, I don't know where I found that book, but it was it was the idea of being a freelance photographer and being able to react and then bring your, you know, your expertise to anything they could throw at you. Well, of course, that's not a viable career today, but it was it was sort of what started it. And um, 
And then, so that just meant, that was my focus was to, to get something published and ultimately started publishing pictures and uh, putting them in portfolios and expecting that as soon as you had a publication, that the phone was going to ring and you were going to get lots of jobs. <laughs> but, but, you know, one of the um, most important things I always think is just kind of thinking about where you're going to be. And, and if you can think about where you're going to be, quite often you get there. Absolutely. If you can see it, if you can visualize something, uh, then then obviously what you've already done is shown yourself the path. Well, it is. I mean, I, I often use it as kind of the metaphor of getting on a bus, which is you don't want to just get on the bus and say, take me wherever you want to go. You want to get on that bus and give them a destination. Yeah, it's it's inherent to that. Yeah, exactly. It's it's uh, it. But the same, you know, this applies to anything one wants to do in their life. If you can see yourself doing it, you can see how it could all come together, you know, and start to see, well, if I do this and that, this is what I'll do. I'll get this. I'll call this person. I'll make this happen. You know, then you've you've sort of already mapped out a path. And once that happens, you're, you can then accomplish it. You can you can actually get on that bus and, and t- it'll take you where you want to go. I, I find that that's absolutely been the case in my life in, in a lot of ways wanting to meet certain people and then becoming good friends with them ultimately, or, you know, uh, thinking I, I'd like to try to put this together and finding the ways and the means to do it. I've, I've published magazines, um, you know, I, I published books. I, I first, that first started with me wanting to have a book of my work published in the early 80s. And I, and I came out of the gate, you know, it, it just gangbusters. I, I just made the dummy. I, I had connections that I was able to, you know, reach people. I found five different foreign language publishers for that first book. They printed 80,000 copies in hardcover, ultimately, in five languages. And it's just it's like, hey, I see how I can do this. You know, I showed up at the Frankfurt Book Fair with my dummy and, uh, and I made that happen. And, and that's not what that book fair is for. And most people weren't necessarily receptive to somebody wanting to show them a maquette, you know. That's not the venue, but it worked. But, you know, back at that time, and I started in in magazines back in 85, so, you know, we've kind of traversed a similar kind of time period there. It was a much less competitive market, and I've done the Frankfurt Book Fair also, and you're absolutely right. You'd have been pretty unique turning up like that, but maybe Uh, nowadays there's a lot more people sort of kind of searching for that kind of publisher. Yeah. No, I don't know. I mean, I'm not really sure. I know that if I went to the book fair today, I would, I would have, it would be a different experience. People would either know me or have heard of me or know some of the things I've been involved in. And, and I might be able to take their card and do a follow-up or some, in some way, but you know, whether they would have actually sat down with me and looked at the work and given it any consideration on the spot, I don't think so. But in those days, you know, everything, that's how it was. I just, assumed that that would be the way it would be. I mean, I, I said, okay, I'm going to this book fair. I'm going to show it to everybody I can. I'll find people. And that's what happened. And it led me down a different, you know, I, I ended up having to publish that book in the United States myself because I couldn't really find an American publisher. We were, we were quite, uh, you know, this was the Reagan years and it was not exactly politically correct to, to, to go publish a book of beautiful nudes at the time. Although there had been, you know, a few serious successes in that market. And, uh, and I was convinced that the time was still uh, good for that sort of thing. And uh, I was what you call undaunted. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I just plowed ahead. And I mean, you know, in the end, I, then I found myself with a publishing company, you know, because basically, I began to understand, I hired a, somebody to help me to, you know, to navigate what that meant and what I had to do and, and printing and, and I learned all about production, I became, you know, fairly, fairly competent and expert on offset presses. And I mean, all these things ended up having to come as as part and parcel that, that package, and ended up printing 23 different books with people and had a publishing company and then evolved into magazine publishing and started one and bought one, had two magazines, I had a staff of about 30 here. And then I had this mail order book business. I mean, all these kinds of things sort of grew out of this thing, all I need to sell books. Okay, I'll start a company. It didn't occur to me to go to someone else really and do it. Exactly as I was saying at the beginning, we've traveled such a similar road. But I wonder if the same, if you hear what I hear, which is people often say to me, well, you know, how do you find the time to do that? Or um, how, you know, why are you doing that? Or, you know, it's okay for you to do that. But I think people have a tendency to either have a fear of failure 
or or a desire to be kind of siloed? It, well, I think to your point, there may have been a, a certain amount of ambition and drive, but also uh, it's also uh, um, in, in our brains, it seems it was an expedient means to an end. I want to publish a book. I'll just publish the book. You know, that seemed to be cut to the chase. Uh, it wasn't really my intention, but it became it be, that became an opportunity or an, or an option, you know. And uh, I made a, a beautiful I made a great sale in the UK w- with a publishing company that then uh, was able to sell a whole quantity to a book club that they were involved in. And so, you know, like things just grew and um, and it, it seemed that that was a good path. I wasn't going to wait for the phone to ring. I wasn't necessarily going to have to rely on, um, you know, what people were offering me in terms of a way to make a living. I was going to put pictures in magazines, make books, put my work out there and make more money than I would had I, uh, you know, been waiting and, and you know, just suffice to say, I'll, I'll be happy to accept my the crumbs of the author's royalties upon sales or whatever that, you know. It, 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 and today, I have to say, those days are gone. I mean, those days of, of printing, you know, five languages with, you know, printing 80,000 in hardcover, that's people are lucky to get a book published with 1500 copies now in a photo book. It's completely different. And, uh, and yet I don't know why it should be. I mean, I would think there's still more of an opportunity there. But, you know, photo books are the one books that don't translate to Kindle, you know? Yeah. And I think what's, I mean, it seems to me as if, you know, you've got that, that phrase, you know, I see no problem. So the, the, you, you kind of like, yeah, we're going to do this and, and it's going to yeah. work, which leads me on to the thing that I really want to talk, because we could talk about that other stuff for kind of all day. Um, <laughs> but one of the things I really want to focus on yes. is, is the festival. And I, I, I want to kind of talk about it with you from two kind of um, perspectives, really. The first one is, why on earth did you set up a festival? And then the second one is, how on <laughs> earth do you run a festival? Well, you know, again, it's, I think ignorance is a virtue, um, you know, uh, uh, being excited about a project and really wanting to, to you know, imagining that you could do these things um, I, w- without having any idea of what you're about to, to get into it kind of helps. And that's the entrepreneur's kind of pathway to success, really, because if it, it, the old the old saw is if you knew what you were getting into, you'd have never done it. Well, you know, that's hindsight's 2020, isn't it? Um, the, the first the answer to the first part of that question is, um, you know, when I was publishing photography magazines, I went to Arles for the first time to the Rencontre. It was called the Rencontre Internationale de la Photo at that time, which unfortunately was the acronym RIP. And that was fine for French people, but it really wasn't a great draw for Americans. So uh, RIP, you know. So they changed the name to the Rencontre Internationale, you know, the, the Rencontre de la Photo Arles, anyway. Um, I, I decided to go there in 86 and uh, and I'd read about it, you know, since its inception in the 60s, late 60s. And I'd read about it in camera magazines and so on, sort of this vaunted thing. So I show up there in 86. I don't know anybody. And, you know, by the end of that week, I must have had uh, 30 or 40 new friends, you know, and I'd seen a lot of work. I just set up camp and started looking at work and I published a number of portfolios from that experience. And, and I have been every single year since I never missed one since 86. And I've stayed in the same hotel room in the same hotel since 86. It's like having, it's like having a timeshare apartment. Um, so, but what, what so was so moving to me about Arl was here was a chance to meet a hundred people uh, who had came from a similar background and had similar uh, ideas and and passions, particularly passions, and were artistic in nature, and um, and they were taking a, a step too. They were showing up. They were bringing work. They were showing it. They were making a you know finding a path forward. And so ever since then, you know, I've made really hundreds and hundreds of friends and acquaintances over the years. Uh, I would never miss it. Uh, because if I went around to see all these people where they lived and in their busy lives or they came to see me, it's very complicated. But we have this one week and it's in this perfect idyllic locale where everybody's wearing shorts and sandals and you can talk to people. This is key. You know, they're not in a suit. You're not in their office. They're not like on the phone. All that stuff is gone and there they are. And so and I'm you know, you have to be an extrovert. I will say that if you're an introvert, I always tell photographers stick to landscape and still life. You know, 
portraiture is not going to be your game. And that, and that sort of holds true. If you're not really, if you're an introvert, this isn't going to be your, your, your demarche, as they say, you know what I mean? But in my case, it's just like, yeah, bust the doors open, go out there and see what's out there. You know, you put a pebble in the pond, right? So aura was always something uh, that I enjoyed. And then I distilled that in my mind. What's missing in my world over here is that people didn't hang out. Photographers didn't hang out, really. I mean, I'm sure they did. We all had a few friends that were photographers. It was great. But there was no real... uh, colleagueship you know we weren't like all part of one big family and yet we all have all these similar backgrounds we think about things the same way a lot of things like that um and so i thought we should do something like that in america and uh, i've always put people together um you know i've been doing this annual photo breakfast for photographers in la since 1979 or 80. i mean literally every every year and now every year there's like 26 to 28 really really well-known accomplished photographers and those that are happen to be in LA from elsewhere that have this breakfast and, and you know and we've done this print exchange with each other for the last 15 years we all have a box of prints from each of those breakfasts we all put a print in a box it's pretty amazing but anyway so to get back to that the festival germination was really I want to put together um, an, an intimate event where we can all hang out share work talk about photography, learn things. And it grew from there, you know, and, and the first one I did was in 2006, where uh, we had probably 80 people show up. And it was a simple affair. I had a partner, uh, a gentleman uh, named Hossein Farmani, who is the guy that started the Lucy's. Um, and, you know, he was he was up for that for the first year, and he had some infrastructure he could bring to the table. And I was sort of the creative director that put it together. And, um, and then after that, he said, well, good luck. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> and uh, but to me, I was, you know, I was enthusiastic because I had 80 people show up and I and what happened in those five days was kind of magical. We had, I don't know, five workshops. We had four seminars and we had maybe, uh, you know, four uh, presentations. But, you know, that was a start. But also organically, it started to grow because people started bringing their own things to the party. You know, at that first event, this woman showed up with a friend with a, and opened her car up and took a whole bunch of books out and put them on tables and just sat in the courtyard of the hotel where we were. And people came and looked at all the books and I didn't know who she was. And they said, should we get rid of her? And I said, no, it's it's all part of this. It's great. It's an impromptu thing. It's good. Well, that lady turned out to be Eileen Gittins, who founded Blurb. <laughs> and she, you know, <laughs> things like this kept, kept happening. Uh, you know, I guess you could say it's it's serendipitous, but it's not. She she also had this idea that, yeah, I read about this thing. I'm going to go there and just do this. She didn't call me. She just showed up. <laughs> so, you know, it was that. Jeff, I just want to stop you for a minute because I can tell you're full of energy and enthusiasm for it. <laughs> well, I, yeah. <laughs> no, that's fine. But, you know, I think what you're painting here is this kind of a very halcyon kind of uh, idea of the festival, mm-hmm. which is great. Um, and I think it's probably exactly the kind of festival that a lot of us would like. Um, there are some out there that exist in this way. But there are an awful lot more which are much more commercially driven or mm. academically driven or conceptually driven, whereas yours seems to be very much about just kind of talking and just communicating. Well, it was in the in the early days. I mean, this is how that was where it started. And and then, you know, and then you find yourself needing to 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 uh, face the reality that you're in the event business it's not the photography business you know you've now segued into sort of the event business and that's that's how you have to approach something like this once it starts to take off because you know there's a million elements and it's a lot of these things are logistical and administrative and so on the part that i don't like uh so they're the they're the the magic is to find people that have the passion for it that bring those elements to the table and and bring them on board and so you know it's a brain trust it you know it takes it takes a village um but uh, so that was the initial way that we started it. And what it became was all about education, inspiration and technology. And those three things also defined that it was going to be a business to business event, a B2B, which meant this is not about amateur photographers. It's not about the public. We don't do exhibitions. It's like not it's completely uh, the other way around. Uh, you know, in Arl, it's, it was always about exhibitions. 
That was the premise. We would all, so there was 3,500 people come to Arl to look at work in that six weeks or eight weeks or whatever, and in and, and all these beautiful venues. Whereas in Palm Springs, I, I chose Palm Springs because it had a lot in common with Arl. It was, it was a warm place. It was the good weather. People coming out of the winter could, you know, in, in May or, you know, April could show up out there and it, it was a holiday place. It also was kind of mythical and, you know, it's beautiful. It's absolutely an amazing place in the Southern California desert. So uh, it's an oasis. So anyway, that that had its charm. And then I later realized it was also two hours accessible to 13 million people, which didn't hurt either. Um, a lot of professionals out there. But, you know, just what you've said there, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, okay, the most people's perception of a festival, as you quite rightly say, is exhibitions, portfolio reviews, and uh, maybe a few talks. That's pretty much the the basic template that most festivals yeah. have. Yeah. Now what you're describing, and um, you know, because I come from academia or part of my life is in academia, is this mm. idea of kind of talks and workshops, seminar, conference. Right. Which is another kind of thing. So is what you're describing kind of like a hybrid between those two things? It's definitely a hybrid. Uh, the festival aspect comes from the fact that photographers are, are groups of people with rather interesting personalities, to say the least. And you put them in one gigantic place and you oil that machine, right? And it, you never know what's going to happen. It's going to be great. Um, you know, but see, once you, once you, the germ of that is the colleagues and hanging out and sharing things that then you have to start to say, well, how do I channel this? Like, what do I want this to be? Where is this going? And what I realized was that as professionals, if I could put you in a room with your hero, for four days, if I could give you all the tools you needed, all the all the whatever that is, the latest technology and all the things that you need to go out and learn how to take it to the next level in whatever area that you're interested in, that that would be something that I would like for me. It was an outgrowth of me putting together people that were very accomplished and hanging out with, you know, it became that. And so that in itself defined the Palm Springs Photo Festival. And that's unique to us. There really is basically nothing else out there or hadn't been for many years. There was, a, there was something going on in Italy the last couple of years that was interesting, um, but they never put the components together. They would do just a workshop program or they would do the just a portfolio review. And to be honest with you, I was our program was probably the second portfolio review in the world. Arl didn't do those. That wasn't where they were going. The, the portfolio review idea came from Houston the Houston Photo Fest. And it was, I did it totally differently because this was for professionals and, you know, but here was, I, I define mine as a job fair. I don't put together, forgive me, I don't have journalists, I don't have bloggers, I don't have, uh, you know, I have people that can give you work, hire you, publish you, exhibit you, that's what I do. So it became, it became a job fair. So now you could go as a professional, you could study with Nadav Kander, or you could study with Peter Lindbergh, or you could study with, you know, whomever, uh, the giants of the industry. You could also show your work to uh, any, you know, as many as probably 20 or 25 people in the, in the five days who could hire you or exhibit you or publish your work. So this was, this was what it became. That's where I saw this. But again, I didn't have that vision as I opened the doors, right? You don't. You see that that could be potentially a thing as as it begins to reveal itself to you if you're if you're open to it. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna raise some some maybe some difficult questions here because anybody who listens to this podcast or reads my writings knows that I'm really against portfolio reviews <laughs> for a start. Not yeah. portfolio reviews in essence, but paid for portfolio reviews. Mm. And I know that the U.S. market is very different. To the UK market, we can oh. get into that separately. Uh, primarily because I feel that the people who should be looking at your work um, to commission you or whatever should be doing it for free because it's part of their job. It's exactly what you grew up with, what I grew up with. You could ring people up, you could ring up the magazine, you could ring up the ad agency, drop off your work, and you could go and see them. So that's one one kind of thing. But before you answer that, I just mm. want to raise the also this point of accessibility because what you're describing sounds amazing however how do you actually finance this festival is it reliant upon sponsors is it reliant upon the photographers and is it accessible to people who perhaps don't have big bucks to pay for it 
Well, all three of those things uh, are are good points, and I'll answer them individually. The first of all, our festival from the second year, I was blessed to have brought on sponsors from major sponsors. That that's because as a magazine editor, I was chasing those same people for magazine advertising. So I already had connections in in the world of you know Canon and and Epson and you know Sony and well, Sony not at that time, but all of these major camera companies and ancillary companies. So uh, that was, and many of those people that I had dealt with were now in the position where they could, uh, you know, contribute to it. And I always made the sponsors contributors, meaning that I imposed upon them that they had to bring something to the table. It wasn't just money. If they just wanted to give me money, I, I sold them a branded sponsorship, branded logo sponsorship. I put their logos on all of our materials as a way of saying that you've supported us. But that wasn't key. Key was you're going to bring an event to it. You're going to bring events. You're going to participate in events. We're going to be you're going to bring something to the table. And, you know, uh, in Canon's case, Canon brings uh, was bringing their repair people. They were bringing cameras to loan everybody. They were bringing, you know, projectors. They were printing people's work all week. This was what sponsorship meant for us. So that's a different tack. No one ever really, I don't think, focused on that. And, and yet that engaged them. And it made plus I have this very well targeted market for them. So sponsorship was key and it happened early. The first one to sign up was Fuji and then Canon or oh, Canon was probably first and then Fuji and then and then we had, you know, uh, Leica since the beginning, lots of them. And so that started to become a place where you could go. Oh, and of course, I made sure that they made possible a way for us to buy these things at a discount. And people could make major purchases at the festival. I'm talking about, you know, large format printers or, you know, the latest cameras with a few lenses, whatever it was. So that was something. Um, so they had rooms at the festival where they were displaying tons of stuff, bringing truckloads, literally big printers and all this um, because of the targeted audience that I'd created and that had created itself. I don't think I created it, but, you know, um, so, yes, yeah, sponsorship was key. Um and so the two revenue streams were sponsorship and, and attendance. And of course, I have to charge a, a professional photographer something to come and, and, and spend time with the person that they want to spend time with, because, of course, I have to make that all possible. And it's an event. You ha you, I can't do an event, you know, with, without that, unless it's something out in the desert where everybody just shows up with their camping car and we see what happens. That's kind of the only alternative. So... So yes, um, and with respect to the portfolio reviews, that grew organically. That wasn't even in my first initial you know, idea. What happened was people started showing each other work and the people that had come were also people that could give them work. So it began to be an organic thing. And, and to your, you know, I understand where you would see a reluctance to, and you're justified because I, used, I actually used to put on our website, we do not pay our reviewers. Contrary to other places where people are doing this for money, in our case, they're coming on their own dime. They're coming because they want to meet you. They need to have continuing new relationships with talent. What I did do is I put them up and fed them for a week and I gave them access to all of the events that we did and they participated. They were all on panel discussions and they participated in symposia. And, you know, so they, they conducted seminars. We had all this integration. So uh, when you say is, you don't agree that uh, people should pay for the portfolio review, if, if I could have paid the equivalent of $85 to sit with you when you were at Tatler and have an opportunity to show you my portfolio, you know, and plus you had brought all these people together. So I had 15, 20, 30 of you from all these different magazines and they were all in one place and they were there for that purpose. And they were there in the spirit of wanting to see new work. You know, this was a beautiful thing. Well, you have to pay me something because I got to bring you, put you, I mean, I got to house you and feed you in a nice hotel and you're invited to all these events that cost money. So there's a, there's a premise here. I can't do the, 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 the vision I had needed to be fueled with some funding. Sponsorship was only a third of the funding. The rest of it came from the attendees that were coming. And so the, the reviewers were not paid. And, and that's something that I'm proud of. And I always actually trumpeted. I mean, this is the place where people came on their own dime to do this. They got on a plane and showed up out here. No one is in Palm Springs. <laughs> you, you know, know yeah, I think you've given an extremely good argument, as of course you would, uh, around this. I have to say, if you'd have come to see me, I, I'd have done it for free. Um, as everybody else. 
everybody else in Vogue House at the time would have done. You could have seen Vogue, GQ, Tatler, everything else, all for free in the same day in the same building. But but I think you make a very good case. Uh, I'm still, and I do think it's very different in the US than it is in the UK. I do think there's two completely different markets. There. Yeah. Well, and also realize that our reviews were never about giving you advice on your photography. That's another completely different thing. This is not about that. Those reviewers were never going to talk to a professional across the table and start telling them you really ought to look at, uh, you know, at changing the way you're doing this or doing that. That's not it. In a job fair, that's not what happens. You know, so the fact is that I could go to Palm Springs and see 40 or 50 or 60 different people and have a choice of them top people in ad agencies and museums and galleries and all these people. Well, they're there in one place. That was the thing. If I know that if I ring you up and I say, I'm going to be in London, you've never heard of me, but would I be able to come around and show you my book? You, you wouldn't charge me. But on the other hand, you're not charging me. The, the event is charging me something to facilitate this. So there's a distinction. Um, and, and uh, you know, we did these great presentations every night in the, in the museum where you could see all this, these great photographers present their work and talk about it. Very illuminating. And then we had a party. I mean, it was, it was, all that stuff takes funds, but it, would, it was the sort of event that I would have dreamt about as a young person trying to get along or trying to improve or try to get to the next level, whatever, that, whatever my reasons were. And then to, to your last question, what do we do about people that don't have funds? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's true. And this is, it's always been a problem. So what we did was we set up, it was a scholarship we awarded and we funded that with our sponsors. And so I went, I got the idea we would do this. I went to the sponsor. I said, I want to add something onto your sponsorship fee because we want to award the opportunity to come to this event to X number of people uh, upon. And it wasn't about presentation of their portfolios. It really wasn't just a talent-based thing because I don't think that's fair either. I mean, how does somebody get to the next level to have, to express themselves in a more meaningful way if if they can never get in, you know, to that event. And so we 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 funded it based on having somebody. Uh, it, it, it started out originally where they these were for students, for advanced students, graduate students. And all we asked for was that the instructor in the graduate program write a letter on their behalf. I didn't look at their portfolios. Nobody did. That was that was really it. And so if if you as their instructor wrote us a letter saying, this is a passionate person, they have talent, this is someone I really highly think recommended that they could really benefit from this. That was good. That's what we wanted. So we were bringing in graduate students on a scholarship basis. And we brought in 10 or 15 every year and put them in the same workshops with everybody else and gave them free access to everything. And I tried to do that. You know, there's limitations financially, I can't make it all about that because who, then I need to be a nonprofit with some General Motors funding or something. Yeah, but there yeah. is there is that. Well, okay. So I want to come to the next festival. You've completely sold it to me. You're very good at all of that. <laughs> I'll but, see you there. <laughs> yeah, but I think that there are two other elements I want to run by you around this thing of the festival. Mm -hmm. um, the first one is having been involved in a festival myself and setting it up. It wasn't photography; it was design. We ran for two years and there, and very successfully. But then, after two years, um, because invariably uh, festivals have trustees and so forth, then it becomes incredibly um, different. People start looking at it, and it becomes about ego, and then it breaks down. Um, and it seems to me that the the most successful festivals work when there's one strong person such as yourself actually leading it and setting this agenda that you've just um laid down well there's that's true i think of almost any company when you think of any startup that becomes successful if it's not driven by some one person uh then you're immediately bogged down in 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 sort of uh uh you know uh, having to make decisions with lots of people those kind of things can cripple you. In fact, they can't work. What you can do is set up a brain trust. You can have people on your board of advisors and you can you can pose questions to them sometimes, more general questions about direction or this or that. But you, if there isn't one person who has the vision and who has the energy uh, and has some magnetism that can bring people to the table, because that's essential. How do I get all these people there? And I started out actually inviting the very people in, in advertising agencies that had hired me. I literally called up the, the creative directors that I'd worked for, invited them, and they showed up. This is like, who thinks of that? But I thought, you know, 
I know this guy and I'm going to ring him up and, and invite him. And sure enough, they showed up. You know, this was this was a blessing. Um, but I agree with you. This this can't be, the, you know, when people are nonprofits and you have a board of directors and they have a financial stake in it and you keep asking them for more money, you're you're kind of somewhat hobbled. You know, you, you can't yeah. get anything done. No, which also raises the sort of the second point as almost a, like a segue that we know what we're doing here. That um, so many of the festivals that currently exist seem to me to fall into two parts. They're either like the Photo London and Photo Paris, they're hardcore gallery commercial enterprises with right. big backing, often mm-hmm. from banks or insurance companies. And then the other kind is the contemporary creative art practice uh, kind of uh, festival, which really struggles consistently to get any funding or, I find, to actually connect with people because the work that is being shown or the photographers that are being put forward are often quite difficult to understand if you're not part of that world already. You come and I come from very commercial backgrounds intrinsically. And therefore, you've repeatedly spoken about the festival as being a business, which is why I think that I completely get where you're coming from with it. But are you looking at these other festivals also and feeling the same way that I've just kind of, kind of, I suppose, outlined there? Well, you know, the num- I've, I've seen dozens and dozens of festivals come and go. I've seen, you know, replicas of portfolio review programs come and go. One guy wanted to start a festival in Colorado, and I, I looked at his program, and he had literally lifted all of my text. He described all of my workshops. He just kept saying, instructor to come, a name to be announced. And he, he just basically, you know, carbon copied everything that I'd achieved and written and stuff, and even hired one of my people away. And I, I wrote him a letter and said, you know, look, man, you're in the mountain climbing business. This is a sports event of yours. You better do your thing. If you don't, you're doing my thing and you're not going to make it. Um, not to mention the fact that, I'll, you know, you'll have a legal issue with me. So just take it offline and get started some other way. And he did, to his credit. But the, the, the answer really is you can't run this, uh, you know, something like this has to be run by one person. And if, if and of the two kinds of festival events that you spoke about, Loosely organized events or people that are actually still a thousand percent committed to their current career, you know, they're not going to really be the people that can devote the energy to it. Um, And it came to me. I was always entrepreneurial in the way that I approached it. And I always um, I always knew that I had to find uh, uh, other ways to express myself because I photograph incessantly and I've had nine books published or 10 books published and i've had i don't know hundreds of exhibitions literally the the the, that takes too long those things come and go and that's great i really appreciate when i have the opportunity to make an exhibition or you know when when i get jobs or i'm hired by an ad agency bless their souls you know it can fund my personal work and i really did have to make a choice am i going to really fully commit to this festival or am i not you know, it was a pivotal moment in my life and my career. And what happened was it just started to grow. And I wasn't really thinking that way. I wasn't trying to make that decision. I found myself having the decision made for me, you know, and I wasn't I wasn't putting up a fight. I liked the experience. I was very proud of what it was what I was doing. And I kept thinking naively that I would still have time to do all the rest of it. But as you know, in the professional photography world, if you don't spend 30% of your time and income on marketing and promoting yourself, you're not going to get noticed. You know, if you happen to be one of the 1% that's, you know, at the top of the game, that's a different story. But this is one of those businesses where 10% of the people do 90% of the business. And 90% of the people are trying to divide what's left of that 10%, you see. And unfortunately, that's the way it is. It's kind of like the movie business. You know, you got a lot of, a lot of actors waiting tables, and then you've got mega stars that are making $25 million. How is that possible? You know, but that isn't something that you can change. What you need to do is navigate that system and find your way to one of those 10%. That's the goal, isn't it? Or you'd be quite happy just plodding along. That's okay, too. I'd have nothing against that. You know, if you want to, if you're a still life guy and you're shooting telephones and making lots of money and have two houses or, you know, two cars in the garage, that's all good. But I, I always wanted to be in that 
10%. I wanted to have a seat at the table. Then I found myself at the table, but it wasn't in the seat that I expected. And what do you do? You know, but I also have to say that I have so many people that have gotten so much out of it. It's been so important to them and so meaningful to them. And plus, not to say a lot of these photographers that are super high end guys that are, you know, at the top of their games found that they they found a great joy in spending those days with people and teaching people. They learned as much as they were offering. It was it's a mutually inclusive kind of thing. And, and I found that was very gratifying. And so gratification helps, you know. It sure, it sure does. But I also <laughs> wonder if, you know, that magazine background that you have and I have gives us this sense that it's perfectly okay to just ring people up and just say, hi, I'm doing this. Do you want to get involved? Because actually magazines and editorial doesn't work unless you do that. But I think a lot of people can put up barriers uh, to that. Oh, yeah, of thinking. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think also that, you know, listen, I think, I don't know, I might be a bit older than you, to, you know, to be to be fair. I when I was starting out the, there, the access was a lot more open than it became in my years of, of experience. And now, I mean, I don't even think there's much access at all. Um, you know, I, I mean, now there's uh, you can't even find the phone number for people in magazines to call. There isn't you have to show up, literally go, you know, and the receptionist is going to say, well, if you'd like to leave something, I'll be make sure that the right person sees it. They won't, you know, and then you get a little letter inside your portfolio. Thank you very much. <laughs> and you don't have any other avenue. It, when I was younger, you could actually ring somebody up and, and actually make an appointment. And I used to go to New York like twice a year on my own dime, having made a bunch of calls and go around and see people spend my whole time in cabs and waiting and this and that. And I don't know that that was ever that fruitful, but it was a, a way of connecting. Let's put it that way. You yeah. know, I, I feel you have a much better chance meeting someone in person than you'll ever do otherwise. And that's the event that is so important. What we do, that review event that we're talking about gets you in front of somebody. And that person can then get a good vibe from you and feel, you know, and then have a drink with you later, uh, you know, and then go, I could go on a job with that guy. I liked him and his work was great. You know, there you are. You've made a connection and that's important. Yeah, I mean, it's so important. I mean, you're actually 10 years older than me, so not not very much. Not <laughs> no, very that's, much plenty. <laughs> that's, that's plenty. That's <laughs> plenty. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot. But to say the least, you know, first of all, magazines have gone away. Yeah, completely. I mean, to, they were the citadel of everything I aspired to when I was younger. All I wanted to do was get my work in magazines. You know, I loved magazines and I loved that that was this huge visual medium and I wanted to be one of those people that was making pictures for them. And, you know, a lot of my friends had had great success in that, that I later became friends with, let's put it that way, that I didn't yet know. <laughs> but it, 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 it was not, it's not possible that anymore. And we've come to a different place. And it's honestly, you know, an electronic world. And uh, I don't know what young people aspire to. Do they really aspire to get something on someone's website? Is that maybe it, it may be the same thing. It's a really good call. And, and and as somebody who does lecture at university and, and run a photography course, I, I will ask my students uh, in the coming weeks because uh, I'm not sure I can answer that. I'm going to ask them and see what, see what they say. Um, before we finish up, because we really could, I'm sure, talk for a very long time. And even though this is only the first time we've met and spoken, I, I can see a, a like-minded soul here. Um, what would your advice be to anybody who was thinking, yeah, you know what? I want to, I want to put on a photo festival. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, um, you know, there's no clear path to putting on a photo festival. That's a fact. Um, I would look at myself and say, do I have these qualities? First of all, am I extroverted? Am I ambitious? Am I determined? Uh, is failure not an option? Uh, am I willing to burn everything and go forward? Um, these are things that you have to really seriously ask yourself. If you think this is going to be just a little sideline that won't require much of your time and you'll throw, you know, see what you could do, I, I would definitely turn around. It's the road will narrow. <laughs> it will not open up. So if you have, I mean, you have to look at who you are as a person or who you could engage. You know, I mean, I had a unique experience and I painted myself in a corner. You know, if I someday somebody came to me and wanted to buy the festival, the first thing they would say is, will you stay for X number of years, a long time? Because 
because I, I did all these other things in my life that brought me to the place where I actually could do this. Are you that person? Have you had that life experience? Do you have connections? Can you bring like-minded people to the table with the passion that you need to fuel this thing? This is the way it goes. If you don't have that, it's gonna be a tough road. And you're gonna to have to become that or change the way you operate or really make that commitment, you know, knowing that you, it's not really something you're comfortable with. That's a different story. I've never, it's not been me. So, you know, um, life experience is key. If you're gonna run a festival, like I've seen a lot of these come and go where, you know, no, I'm, I'm not, don't take this any other way. They've been launched by journalists or they've been launched by uh, people that are not practicing, practicing photographers. So now how do you do an event for people when you're not in the in the mix? Like you're not one of the people that is sh completely shared the, their whole experience when you, you know, these are potentially your friends. It's it's very difficult, I think. I think it's it's OK. Um, or you've left a big company and you see a way to a career and launching a festival. But, and if you can bring on sponsorship and if you know how to reach the people and, uh, and, and people and know what it is that the people really want and need, you know, we were there at the crux of a lot of weird things in this world. Like the first year we had a, a, a symposium that was silver or digital. <laughs> I mean, you know, that didn't last long, not a topic four years later. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, things like this have really shifted um, marketing, the, the, all the programming that we created about marketing. Forget about it. It's all different now. There was no TikTok and social media. There was none of this stuff. Um, you couldn't even bombard people's with email back then. It wasn't doable. So anyway, a lot of things have changed. And I, work, I just if you have a clear vision, if you have the passion, if you see a new experience that you can create for people that will draw people. You know, you you really then then you should go full throttle. It's OK. You know, there are ways in uh, definitely. But no one I've ever known has come at it the same way as I have. When Lucian Clerk started the festival in Arl, it was just him and four guys showing some work on a slide projector in a hotel. You know, of course, they didn't see it growing out this. But then they all enjoyed each other's company so much that they wanted to do it next year and make it bigger and make more people come and see what happened. And, you know, Lucian had to also decide whether he was going to shift a lot of his energy to doing this. And he did. Yeah. Do you know, I think that's one of the key things is where often people get, go wrong on any initiative coming out of photography is that they have dreams which are way beyond what they should be, particularly financial dreams and business plans. And actually, by starting small and starting passionate, you can then see if it grows. But don't go in there at the beginning thinking you're going to make a load of money. No, and you also can't map it out by copying what else is out there. You can't go, okay, we'll offer seminars, we'll do reviews, we'll do all this stuff, because you don't even know what that entails or, or where. how do you fuel all that? The fact is, yeah, you have to start small. You have to let things reveal themselves to you. You have to be open to that. And then you have to see the path. And uh, if you have an, an event that people are passionate about or drawn to or benefit enormously from, then new pathways are opening all the time. All you have to do really is be aware and understand how it could fit into the, into the, into the total picture. How am I, what can I offer sponsors? You know, yeah. what can I, what else is it that I can create that isn't out there? Um, it's, it's, you know, and we've done this 18 years now, and I pivoted to online events during the COVID thing, and we were running two online events a year and other things. And, you know, you have to be able to pivot. You can't, you can't sit there with your roadmap and not deviate because the roadmap, you know, then you're not being informed by all these things, things that actually happen that, that you never could have planned upon. And, and you can then integrate. And so, you know, you have to be open to that. Um, so ask yourself, what kind of person are you? And what is your background? What is your experience? What is it that gives you the conviction that what you want to do, there's a market for? It's like magazine publishing or opening a restaurant or anything else. It's a lot of hard work. And initially, you know, you're going to set 20 tables and two people are going to come in and dine every night for a month. You know, if the word doesn't get out there, you're going to fold. Those are, yeah. those are considerations. And I had never really thought about that until now, but you know, it really comes down to who is launching this. Uh, you know, you're right. I don't think a committee can do something like this. This could not happen possibly in places like Japan 
uh, or, or you have to have a maverick guy in Japan who doesn't care at all about the way he's been raised to to, to think that way. Because really, you know, you, you and there are a lot of mavericks in Japan. I'm not saying that, but you know, people that achieve these kinds of things, they don't do it in that environment where there's a group of people all trying to decide what to do. I completely agree with you, and thank you, Jeff. I think you probably are a maverick. Um, I often get oh, no. described as a maverick. I think all mavericks should probably stick together in yes. one, way, one way or another. <laughs> yeah. Thank you oh, so much for your passion and energy. Thank you. I want to say one thing. I, w- I want to say that you drew out of Peter Fetterman quite an interview. <laughs> oh, thank you very, very <laughs> he's much. A, he's an old friend, and I, I must say, you got him. You got him rolling, and it was a very engaging conversation. <laughs> thank you. Well, I, I hope uh, Peter feels the same about this particular episode. Well, thank you. Thank you. He's a great guy. I've known him a long time. Anyway, all the best to you, and uh, we should talk again. It was fun. Yeah, that would be absolutely fantastic. We may have to put a few episodes aside, I get the feeling. Okay. All right. Well, good. Thank you very much. And thanks very much to Jeff for joining us uh, in that conversation. Uh, Totally inspirational from my perspective. I hope so from yours also. Um, Just leaves me to say uh, Merry Christmas. And don't forget that next week we've got another special episode. And of course, take care. (music) 